Turn with me in God's Word to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14, found on page 1173 of the Pew Bible. Mark chapter 14, and we're going to read verse 53 to 72, the end of chapter 14. Let's listen to God's Word. And they led Jesus away to the high priest, and with him were assembled all the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes. But Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he sat with the servants and warmed himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and all the council sought testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimonies did not agree. Then some rose up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. But not even then did their testimony agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, Do you answer nothing? What is it the What is it these men testify against you? But he kept silent and answered nothing. Again, the high priest asked him, saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the blessed? Jesus answered, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. Then some began to spit on him, and to blindfold him, and to beat him, and to say to him, Prophesy! And the officers struck him with the palms of their hands. Now as Peter was below in the courtyard... One of the temple, sorry, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, "You also were with Jesus of Nazareth." But he denied it, saying, "I neither know nor understand what you are saying." And he went out on the porch, and a rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him again and began to say to those who stood by, "This is one of them." But he denied it again. And a little later, those who stood by said to Peter again, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean, and your speech shows it. Then he began to curse and swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. A second time the rooster crowed. Then, Jesus, then Peter called to mind the word that Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And when he thought about it, He wept. Amen. May God bless us the reading of his word. So in our passage today, we see the trial of Jesus Christ. Now, some of the biggest trials of modern history have been that of celebrities, whether it was O.J. Simpson, Bill Clinton, Oscar, Pistorius, maybe more recently, Johnny Depp, Trials which include famous people, they seem to catch our attention. There is a curiosity to see how they will respond 
when they are made vulnerable? Will they get the same treatment as everyone else, or will they get a light touch? And the result is that there is more than one person under trial. The judge, the lawyers, they are all under trial, for the media will dissect every question that was asked or that was not asked. And this was especially seen in the trial of O.J. Simpson. The prosecuting lawyer was a woman called Marcia Clark. And she had a great reputation as a lawyer. She had won 19 of her previous 20 cases. But after the trial, supposedly she never returned to legal work. She suffered burnout from the experience. The media put her on trial and commented on everything from her prosecuting style to her hairstyle. Well, in our passage today, we read of not just one trial, but two trials happening in the same place, in the home of the high priest Caiaphas. Mark loves to sandwich together events to force you to compare and to contrast. And so we see the trial of Jesus by the religious leaders, but then we also see this trial that Peter faced by the servant girl. So I want you to see that Peter reminds you that even the strongest will buckle under trial. And that's why Jesus is your Savior. Only He withstood the trials triumphantly. And so in Him is their forgiveness. So firstly, when you face foolishness, often the best response is to remain silent. Verses 55 to 61. So the Sanhedrin is the supreme council of the Jews. And it's headed by the high priest, and it had religious and civil and ceremonial jurisdiction, criminal jurisdiction. It was made up of the chief priests, of the teachers of the law, and the elders. And the elders are those who represent the elite families in Jerusalem, as we read in verse 53. And these men were clearly out for blood. Mark makes it clear what their motives were of the religious leaders. It was to remove Jesus And we saw that right from the beginning in Mark's gospel. In Mark chapter 3, after Jesus healed on the Sabbath, we read, then the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. And that desire is still evident. We read in verse 55, they sought testimony that would enable them to put Jesus to death. And so here we see their plan coming together. These men, they pretended to be devoted men of God, to be strict on keeping the law, emphatic that they seek the truth, and yet we see here the complete opposite. This was a miscarriage of justice. They stitched together this illegal trial. Note when it takes place. It's in the middle of the night. How many trials happen in the middle of the night? And so again, they use the cover of darkness to do their evil deeds. There were 70 members in the Sanhedrin, but they only needed a third to be present to make a quorum. And they would have made sure that they would have had Jesus' harshest critics present. And so it's unlikely that Nicodemus would have been there. Now, Jesus was seen as guilty before the trial had even begun. Therefore, there was no impartiality in this trial. Normally, in a court setting, the accused would have a right to a fair trial, a right to call their own witnesses. Instead, we read of the witnesses that the chief priests call. One of them, or they recall Jesus saying, 
I will destroy the temple made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. Well, that's not what Jesus said. In John chapter 2, verse 19, Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Jesus never said that he himself would destroy the temple, and anyway, the temple that he was speaking of was not this physical temple of this building, but it was the temple of his body, which John makes clear in verse 21. So no wonder Mark describes these witnesses as false. This illegitimacy is obvious in that there is evidence it doesn't cooperate, it doesn't work together. And that's especially important in Jewish law, that you're found guilty on the evidence of two or more witnesses. Deuteronomy 19, we read, One witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. The chapter goes on to speak of severe repercussions for false witnesses. Well, the witnesses at Jesus' trial, they could not agree on the facts. How does Jesus respond to these accusations? Well, he remains silent. The high priest even probes him. He's given the chance to respond, but he doesn't. These charges had not been substantiated, and so he had nothing to respond to. Instead, they're all lies. They're false accusations. Everyone can see that. But by staying silent, Jesus is also remembering and fulfilling Scripture In Isaiah 53, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And so here Jesus fulfills scripture. So let's not forget that these religious leaders, they would also know these scripture passages too. But in their hatred, They could not see it being fulfilled right in front of them. And so when someone wrongs you and speaks evil against you, it's hard not to respond with revenge, at least vengeful thoughts of what you would like to say. You may even enjoy playing it out in your head. Someone posted a meme the other day, do not seek revenge, rotten fruit falls by itself. And there is a lot of truth to that. Now, it's not to say that there is not a time or a place to deal with people who cause serious hurt. And of course, if it's criminal, then there are legal responsibilities to do so. But often, the best course is to be silent. This trial of Jesus was close to collapsing. They could not find a charge against him. False accusations will often collapse. And so let them fall without being part of it. Peter speaks of this in 1 Peter 2. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. Likewise, you are to put your trust in God. Do not feel the need to respond to foolishness, but instead be silent. Well, secondly, notice Jesus is the Christ who will judge injustice. Although at times it's not wise to respond, be comforted to know that it doesn't go completely unnoticed. 
For while Christ did not respond to these accusations, it's not that he was ignoring them. No, he knows he will judge them. And we see this warning once the high priest steps into the trial. Caiaphas is a high priest, and he gets involved now in the interrogation. He realizes that Jesus, by remaining silent, he's not going to take the bait of these false accusations. Caiaphas also has had enough of the embarrassment of these false witnesses. Wilmshurst writes, Caiaphas, we know, is a wily character. In a time when high priests last only an average of four years, he manages 19. He refuses to give up on this dysfunctional trial. Faced with silence, Caiaphas decides that he will have to take on the interrogation himself directly. And so Caiaphas asks Jesus, Are you the Christ? Are you the Son of the Blessed? And this Son of the Blessed means someone with a special relationship with God. Now, Caiaphas isn't asking if Jesus is God. That would be unthinkable for a Jew. But does Jesus see himself as being greater than everyone in this room in terms of having a privileged relationship with God? Well, here is when Jesus speaks. He finally is asked a worthwhile question. And his answer is, I am. He agrees with Caiaphas. But then he expands so that they fully understand his identity. He's more than a political Messiah that the Jews were expecting. He is the Son of Man, sitting at the right hand of God. And so Jesus is picking up on Old Testament language on his identity as the Messiah. The reference to Son of Man is found in the book of Daniel. And you have that in your bullet in Daniel 7, verse 13. I was watching in the night visions... And behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven, he came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. So Jesus is saying that the Ancient of Days, God himself, would give him an eternal kingdom made up of people from all over this world. He has authority over all the earth, and therefore he is deserving of glory. Jesus also said that he's sitting at the right hand of God. And this is a reference to Psalm 110 that we sang earlier. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion. Rule in the midst of your enemies. So they knew that Psalm 110 was a messianic psalm, how it pointed to the Messiah, the coming Lord, to be greater than that of even King David, that the Messiah would be God himself. For Jesus to say he is sitting at the right hand of power, he is saying that he is God. Jesus also says that he comes with the clouds. And when we see clouds here, don't be confused with rain clouds, the clouds we have here on earth. Now, these are clouds of heaven. Keller helpfully writes, these clouds are the Shekinah glory, the very presence of God. And therefore, by replying as he does, Jesus is saying, I will come to the earth in the very glory of God and judge the entire world. And so it's a claim to deity. Wilmhurst writes, 
I am the Son of Man who will wield the very authority and judgment of God over the world. I am the Lord who sits at God's right hand. And when I come in divine majesty, you will see it for yourselves. And so while you have Jesus here being judged by these religious authorities, he's telling them, I am judging you. Well, the high priest, in response, he tears his clothes. He doesn't assess the truth of Jesus' claim. He won't even consider that Jesus might be the Son of God who he claims to be. How could this man, who was nothing in their eyes, be the Son of Man? This was simply blasphemous to their ears. And so Caiaphas, he cries out this verdict of guilty. He asks them, the other religious leaders, what do they think? And they all declare he is deserving of death. That's because blasphemy carries with it capital punishment. And now we see the trial of Jesus disintegrate into a riot. Those present, they get so angry and so worked up that the hatred simply spills out of them. They spat on Jesus to express their contempt to belittle him. They mock him asking him to prophesy. If he, is the prophet, if he is the prophet, he should be able to say who it is that's hitting him. And they hand him over to be struck by their law officers. And they would continue the onslaught. And so we see the beginning of Jesus' physical suffering. Jesus, the judge, is the one being punished. For the religious leaders, they could not see who Jesus is. All they saw was weakness. They saw him as a threat. Now was their opportunity to pay back the one who had caused them so much grief the past three years. They were so focused on themselves that they did not see that they themselves were fulfilling the prophecy. Christ prophesied three times in Mark, saying it would be the chief priests who would arrest him, who would condemn him to death, that they would mock him and spit on him. Isaiah the prophet said, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed. And so throughout all of this, his mission, Christ's mission, was being fulfilled. And while it is terrible, Jesus is suffering on your behalf. This is his sacrifice to cover your transgressions, to cover your iniquities, And while he faced great injustice, he is the righteous judge. And so these evil men will also face condemnation for their actions if they don't turn to Christ for forgiveness. All injustice in this world will be judged by the judge, the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll thirdly consider to deny Christ is to say he is not enough. So Peter is the only disciple not to desert him, for he follows Jesus at a distance. He warns himself by the fire in the courtyard. And you can imagine this courtyard bustling with people. If the Sanhedrin had at least a quorum present, that would mean there'd be at least 24 religious leaders present upstairs. And they would have brought their entourage who would have been waiting outside, downstairs in the courtyard. But Peter here is also facing a trial in Caiaphas' house. And the trial is not by the high priest, but we read that it's by a servant girl. 
The girl recognizes Peter being with Jesus. Maybe on the many visits to the temple that Jesus made, she had seen Peter with him. And she says, you were with Jesus of Nazareth. But Peter denies it, and we read of how he moves out to the porch. Now in the darkness, the servant girl wasn't sure if she had been mistaken. But after a second look, she's much more confident, and she tells the others present, this is one of them. But Peter denies it again. Possibly Peter now returns to the fire after the girl has moved on. But when he starts talking to those who are present, his accent gives him away. They tell him, surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. And your speech shows it. Again, he denies. This time, he curses and swears that he does not know this man. He calls down curses on himself that if he were telling a lie, he would be cursed. The cock rode for the second time, and Peter remembered what Jesus said before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And so Peter is racked with guilt. He broke down and wept. What a terrible incident. Peter had promised Jesus Christ, even if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. But all it took was a servant girl one of the most lowliest of people in that society, to make Peter feel afraid. Jesus had been captured. Peter is surrounded by those who hate Jesus. And so rather than face that hatred, Peter became a coward. He denied his relationship with Christ. And in doing so, he was saying that his safety came from being included by these people and not from Jesus Christ. Ferguson writes, he would disown his Lord rather than deny himself. And Wilmer says, when we sin, we are saying that Jesus is not enough. Every sin we commit, it denies the Lord. Peter thought he would be there with Jesus, that he would support his master. But his bravery melted away. He became fearful. He put his own safety first, his own comfort first. And it resulted in him denying Christ. Now we live in a time when it's not comfortable to be a Christian. When you are mocked for your Christian beliefs. When people respond by simply saying, wow, when you tell them that you believe that we are all sinners. That we are all deserving of God's wrath in hell. That it's through Jesus Christ alone that we can get to heaven. And they take this self-righteous position and they look down upon you as if you're from another age, another planet, that you are to catch up with the times. And it's hard in those situations to hold firm. It's hard not to feel small when they take this posture against you. But you should prod them and ask them, why are you saying wow? Force them to put it into words. Do not be intimidated. When you recognize who Jesus Christ is, then you will see that he is enough that he is worth the discomfort, that he is worth sacrificing for. So don't be like Peter. You don't need to be afraid. And so don't deny Christ. Remain loyal to him. Well, fourthly, do not ignore God's warnings, but watch out for temptation. What's surprising about this incident in regards to Peter is that Jesus had warned him that this would happen. 
Jesus had prophesied that Peter would deny him. Now, possibly Peter thought that he had already overcome this temptation in the garden. When everyone else ran away, Peter stood strong. He pulled out his sword. He cut off the ear of the priest's servant. In the garden, Peter was ready for a fight. But in the courtyard, Peter was not ready. When he was by himself, all it took was the question of a servant girl to weaken his resolve. And that's a warning for us. We often think that we will see the devil's temptations come our way, that it will be obvious. But the devil would work through this servant girl. And so what seemed insignificant would be hugely significant. Jesus had warned Peter in the garden to watch him pray. You do not fall into temptation. But Peter, again, he did not take that seriously. He was not on high alert here. He was not watching and praying, and so he easily succumbed. And when he did initially deny Christ, he didn't stop. And sin is often progressive. Once you start, it's hard to stop. And so by, not, by denying Christ the first time, it became harder to admit that he did know Jesus when he was questioned the second and the third time. And what's interesting is that the cock crowed the first time in verse 69, and it didn't even register with Peter. Here God was ringing a bell in Peter's ear, and yet he chose to ignore the warning. You need to see temptation coming. You need to heed the warning. Too often we see sin as something small, as having no consequences. And so we make a throwaway remark, or we see a tantalizing news article online, or we make a comment on Facebook, or we have a conversation with someone of the opposite sex where we're obviously flirting with them. And it starts small. You say, no big deal. But isn't that the case for everyone who falls into sin? It always started small, but it quickly became much bigger, and it led to destruction. The other week we went fishing, and it was the first time that we had gone fishing and actually caught something. And we put a worm on a hook, and it was in a pond that was heavily stocked with fish. And so we were sure uh, we would catch fish. And so the, the kids, uh, they caught lots of fish. We had to throw the fish back into the pond once you'd caught them. And these fish had these hooks through their faces, nearly through their eyes. It was hideous. And yet the fish, they kept on biting. They kept going after the bait. And you and I are not that different. We need to say no to the bait. Remember, Mark got his information from Peter. Only Peter knew about this event in the courtyard. Yet he allows this event to be included as a warning to you. As a leader of the early church, surely it would have made more sense not to include this event to improve Peter's reputation. But no, Peter wants you never to think of yourself as strong in and of yourself. Instead, you are to heed these warnings. You are to watch and pray that you too do not fall into temptation, that your strength comes from the Lord. Luke's account we read that somehow Jesus and Peter's eyes meet at the time of Peter's denial. Possibly Jesus was being moved from one room to another upstairs. He looks down into the courtyard 
and saw Peter. And Peter saw Jesus and saw a look of compassion. So fifthly and finally, turn to Christ. For as Christ forgave Peter, Christ will forgive you. While Peter failed to stand for the truth in his trial, Jesus did not fail. And that's why Mark contrasts these two trials. Jesus faced the powerful and wealthy Sanhedrin who were trying to incriminate him with their lies, while Peter faced a servant girl who asked the truth. Jesus declared his identity even though he would face serious consequences for doing so, while Peter lies about his identity. Jesus is accused of blasphemy, while Peter is the one who actually blasphemes. Jesus calmly faced death, while Peter, who was in no immediate danger, is agitated and afraid. And so Peter, who is considered a strong character, and we see that throughout the Bible, throughout the gospel, he is the first to declare Jesus as the Christ. He is the one who walks out on the water to meet Jesus. He is often the first one to speak. But we see him here in all of his weakness. Peter had to see his weakness for him to see his need of Christ. Hudson Taylor said, God chose me because I was weak enough. He trains somebody to be quiet enough and little enough and then uses him. One writer says, the Lord had strength and I had the weakness. And so we teamed up. It was an unbeatable combination. And you need to recognize your weakness. Don't think that you're strong. But then recognize that Jesus is triumphant in the trial. He persevered throughout all of his suffering. For in doing so, he knew that he was being punished for every sin that you committed. He paid the price of sin so you can have hope, so that Peter can have hope. That's why it's not the end for Peter. When the angel appeared to the woman at the tomb, they said, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they lay him. But go. Tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. And he said, as he said to you, and Peter, Peter too, although he had denied his Lord, he too can have hope in Christ's resurrection. For in Christ, Peter is forgiven. Likewise for you too. You know forgiveness in Christ even if you have denied your Lord in the past. So Peter reminds you that even the strongest will buckle under trial. That's why Christ is your Savior. Only he withstood the trial triumphantly. And so in him there is forgiveness. Another example of a man that didn't hold firm is Thomas Cranmer, who was the first Protestant Archbishop of Canterbury. He recanted of the faith during the reign of Bloody Mary. He gave way to pressure to recant of protestantism, to submit to papal authority. But later he did denounce his recantations, knowing the consequences would be execution. And he declared that he would punish the hand that originally signed the recantations by burning it first. And this he did. He stretched out his right hand. He held it in the fire till it burnt to a cinder, even before his body was injured, frequently exclaiming, this unworthy right hand. 
And when he was close to death, he said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Cranmer was weak, but in knowing Christ's forgiveness, he was made strong. And like Peter, he reminds you that even the strongest will buckle under trial. So remember, Jesus Christ is your Savior. He withstood the trial triumphantly. In him, there is forgiveness. Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord God, we often see ourselves as strong like Peter did. And so, Lord, we pray that you would humble us to recognize our weakness, that instead that we would recognize that in Christ we are strong, for he is the one who was triumphant in the trial. Through him we have forgiveness. Through him we are strengthened to stand when we face trial. And so, Lord, help us to watch out in temptation. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, please turn your psalm book to Psalm 130a. Psalm 130a, this psalm reminds you that in your sin, you are to come to God, and he will pardon you. You are Israel. You are God's people. And so your hope is in the Lord. Let's praise God with these words. Psalm 130a. Psalm 130a. 